Jesus was crucified. But many believe that the origins of Good Friday was really God's Friday. I like God's Friday better than Good Friday. And even though it was good, but shrouded in something that looked bad, Good Friday really is good, but more than that, it's God's Friday. You know, and, you know, there's a lot of examples in the development of, like, Anglo-Saxon language, and you look into etymology. You know, just like goodbye used to be God be with you. How many of you know goodbye came from God be with you? So I'm going to just call it God Friday. And so when we talk about it, that's what we're going to do. So number one, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because that's a victory. Amen? We celebrate that Sunday morning. And there's a difference between commemorate and celebrate. Good Friday is a time to commemorate the death of Jesus. Easter Sunday is a time to celebrate the life and resurrection of Jesus. Two different things. But there's some interesting things that I want to talk to you about concerning Good Friday. And it's really kind of like God taking care of business Friday. God preparing for the resurrection Friday. There's a lot of things that took place that are not the resurrection in and of itself, but they are a precursor and a requirement and a must in order for the resurrection to happen. See, what happened on Good Friday, there, there's several things that I'm going to talk about. Those days between the Jesus, while Jesus was crucified, and then the days leading up to the resurrection are very important days. And there's some things that took place, and we didn't know exactly what hour, or, but we know in between that time when he was put to death, that the time that he rose from the grave, that some things happened that the Bible talks about that are not the resurrection, but they're precursors to the resurrection. So I want to begin by saying three reasons why we commemorate Good Friday. And number one is to be the propitiation of our sins. Now, propitiation is a big theological word, and it is to satisfy the justice, the satisfying of justice. There's only one that's going to get justice right, and it's God Almighty. It's not going to be any person. Now, he has ordained that there be civil authorities and that they should operate, but even they have gotten so far from justice, it's almost pathetic. But justice isn't just something that you think is going to happen. But justice, the ultimate act of justice that just covers everything that's ever been done, is the propitiation, the satisfying of justice before God that was done by Jesus Christ by hanging on the cross. And propitiation also means this, to remove wrath by a substitute. So, 1 John, let's go there. We're going to read some verses on propitiation. And propitiation doesn't have anything to do with the resurrection. It has to do with what had to take place before the resurrection could happen. Before the resurrection could happen, this has to take place. This isn't part of the resurrection. It's a precursor to the resurrection. 1 John 4.10, and it says, Here in his love... Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his John 
to be the propitiation, propitiation for our sins. So that is, this is love. It says, herein is love that God sent his son to be the satisfying of justice, to be the removing of wrath by a substitute. Okay, we also know the first John you can just go back one page, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. It says, my little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We could say we have a, an attorney with the Father. We have a defense attorney with the Father. And it goes on and it says, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not our sins only, but also the sins of the whole world. So Jesus was the substitute to remove wrath. Well, God's a loving God. God, you know, God doesn't have wrath anymore, does he? Well, that's not true. It's interesting how people think about God today as if God is not the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is a wrathful God, but we as Christians, thank God, we don't feel his wrath. So we forget that the wrath that he's going to pour out on the world and the wrath that he would have had if we weren't covered by the blood of Jesus and the propitiation of Jesus. If we, if, we, if we stay away from that too long and we live in the mercy and we live in the grace and we live in the love of God, we can kind of forget that actually God is a very wrathful God. Turn, turn, are you turn to, turn to Psalm 711, kind of like the you know, quick gas the quick shop 711 if you can't ever remember just remember the quick shop 711 it says god judges the righteous and god is angry with the wicked every day now if we said if the psychiatrist heard that he would say that god has an anger problem but god is angry how many know it doesn't say it's wrong to be angry it says be angry and sin not anger is how you feel wrath is how you propitiate your anger. It's how you placate. It's how you take it out. God is angry. At the same. Now, how can God be angry and God be love and joy and all these things at the same time? I don't know. I don't know how he can be three persons in one either, but he is. Now, God is no longer angry at us, the Bible says but he still has wrath because wrath is the outpouring, is the, is the response of anger. Wrath is the retaliatory response to anger. Turn with me. Well, that's just Old Testament, Pastor Bill. Don't you know that? Well, turn with me to Revelation 14, 9 through 11. It talks about God's wrath. And I could give you a dozen other places where it talks about, but we don't have time just to talk about God's wrath tonight. But you could, you could teach on that for a long time because there's a whole lot of material about God's wrath in the Bible. Revelation 14, 9. Remember, propitiation is Jesus operating, satisfying justice, or removing wrath. Removing wrath by a substitute. See, when there's justice, there has to be punishment. How many of you know that? Otherwise, why did Jesus get punished? We know that that's part of God's makeup, who he is, and we're made in his image. But let's read that 
Revelation 14, 9 through 11, it says, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark on his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark in his name. Wow. Torment. Look at that tormented with fire and brimstone. And the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. That's the wrath of God. God will so utterly destroy and reduce to absolute horror and torment those who ultimately will not submit and ultimately who will, will worship the Antichrist. So these are, these are very frightful scriptures. You know, I watched a movie a long time ago, and I, I like a lot of these old 1950s movies. And there was this movie, and I can't remember who, he was the real handsome guy, and it was Doris Day, and, and, and who, who's the guy we, we, we watched his movies, and I can't remember, Cary Grant. I think it was Cary Grant and... And uh, Marilyn, no, 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 uh, who did I just say? Doris Day, yeah. And she got really mad at him. Like he was like looking at some woman wrong or, or something happened. And the wrath of Doris Day came out. And instead of smacking him upside the head, she took every vase in the house, if I'm remembering the character, and she threw this vase against the wall. And then she took this thing and threw it against the wall. She busted every piece of interior decor in that house. That's what you call removing wrath by a substitute. Those vases were substitutes for Cary Grant. I, if I remember right, I think it was Cary Grant Thursday, but it was one of those old 1950s movies. And she screamed, and she threw those things, and she busted those things, and she threw a fit, and she jumped up and down. Now, but she never did anything directly to him, but she had wrath, and there was propitiation made because she took a substitute and, and threw it against, you know, that. And, and it's kind of like the guy, you know, who, uh, and we've all seen this before, the angry man who's mad at his wife or his kids, but he goes out and he kicks his dog instead. That's propitiation. That is the satisfying of justice through and taking away the wrath of God through a substitute. How many of you think that's not fair? Well, how many of you know it wasn't fair for Jesus? God did it because of grace, not fairness. He did it because of mercy, not fairness. And Jesus was the object of God's wrath for all man's sin, all the way from Adam to Armageddon. 
how many of you, that's a lot of sin to be mad at. That's a lot of rebellion. That's a lot of unkept promises. That's a lot of blasphemies. That's a lot of perverse things. That's a lot of spitting in God's face. And that's a lot of stuff over a long period of time. And how many of you know, that probably made God pretty angry. And he was going to take it out on us, or he had to take it out on a substitute. Turn with me to Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. We're talking about what was Good Friday all about. What was the Via Dolorosa? What was the 39 stripes? What was the spear in the side, the thorns in the head, and the nails in the hands, and the plucking of the beard, and the rejection, and the spewing all over Jesus, and treating him like a piece of trash, and beating him, and doing all these horrific, unbelievable, terrible, terrible things to Jesus. What was Good Friday all about? Why would we call a horrible Friday like that a Good Friday? It was good because what God was actually doing for, our, for us on our behalf. crazy what this says look what it says this is his only begotten son this is him incarnated into a human being isaiah 53 10 it says yet it pleased the lord to bruise him he busted up his body he allowed it to be brutally beaten until jesus was covered with blood and bruises he was mad about that sin somebody say amen he was mad about your sin. Don't ever think God wasn't angry about your sin. Don't ever think that. Just because it didn't get taken out on you, it got taken out on Jesus. You know, we would sin less if we knew how angry God was and how beat up Jesus was, all because of our sins. I knew you'd get real excited and run the aisles about that, but it's still true anyhow. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. And when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his land. Wow. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Oh, it's the satisfying of justice and God's wrath is what propitiation means. And he shall be satisfied by his knowledge shall many, excuse me, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Well, that's a, that's a frightening thing. So, number one, what was Good Friday about? It was about God taking out his anger on his own son, his own self, all the sins of the world. His anger was all poured out on one person. Now, here's the thing that you need to think about. If it was already, the wrath was already poured out on Jesus, be smart and know this, that if somebody's already paid for it, don't go pay for it again and have God's wrath poured out on you by not knowing the Lord. And of course, I, I believe everybody here knows the Lord, but, but that's what Good Friday was about. It wasn't about the resurrection the resurrection couldn't happen until this took place first. And satisfying the propitiation and the resurrection are two different things. One's a precursor for the other. But Good Friday was all about something other than the resurrection. Somebody say amen. There was something that took place there. It had to happen. 
He destroyed the devil and the power of death. That's the second thing that he did. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. So number one, he had to take care of justice. How I many you know raising from the dead really doesn't have any, much of anything to do with justice? But propitiation has to do with justice. So these, these things that we celebrate, these things that we commemorate, in, in the case of Good Friday, these things have great and profound meaning, though they're not generally preached on very much or understood very deeply. These things are very, very profound and very serious things for us to understand. Hebrews 2 and 14 and 15, look what it says there. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same. That through death, everybody say through death, that, that was Good Friday. He, he was killed on Good Friday. Through death. Not resurrection, through death. Through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Okay. And deliver them who were, through the fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Wow. So it says he destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Now, we got, we got to realize he took away his power. He destroyed him who had the power. Now, he's already been, the devil's already condemned to hell God had said that a long time ago. The devil is already condemned to be defeated by Jesus, but then, but how is Jesus defeating the devil? Did Jesus go down there and have a fist fight with the devil and beat the tar out of him and say, I won? No, it had nothing to do with that. Nothing like that at all. See, the wages of sin, he, he, he destroyed him who had the power of death. So there's this guy who has the power of death on people, and it says who, he delivered us and delivered them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to the bondage. Well, what brings death? For the wages of sin is death. How many of you know if you take away what causes death, then there's no more fear of it? And the way that he delivered those who were always afraid of death is to take away sin. So we don't have a death, we just have an opportunity to get a new body and to live forever. Because death is not an event, death is a force. He took away the death force and he changed the death event. Let me say that again. Jesus took away the death force and he changed the death event. He took away the death force, because death is a force, and he changed the death event. That's when your spirit leaves your body. Nope, now your spirit leaves your body for a new, far better body. Somebody say amen. So any way you cut it, death doesn't get to win this situation. Death doesn't prevail over us in this situation. Death is something that now uh, Jesus has power over. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 and 54. And you hear this quoted all the time. And it's a powerful scripture. 
And it says, so when the corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, that's talking about us getting our new body, right? Let's say it again. When this corruptible, this, how many of you know this body is corrupted with sin and it's dying and someday it'll fully die? It's corrupted. It's got sin. It's got sickness. So then when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, that's our new glorified body, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall it be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. So the sting of death is sin. In other words, that, that's the thing uh, that gives death its sting uh, is, is sin. Sin is what brings death to us. But if you remove sin, cause and effect, you remove the cause, you will fix the effect. So if you take away sin, then you're actually taking away death. See, so, so now what Jesus did is he has the propitiation and sin is now paid for. It's kind of like the judge is sitting in the courtroom and he says to, you know, Freddie over here, your fine is $1,000 and you aren't leaving here and we're keeping you in the bondage of the, of the courtroom or the jailhouse, but we've got this over you. And that's not death, but, it, but it's kind of a death to a person's freedom. They can't leave. They're in handcuffs. And then somebody comes up, and in this case, it's the judge takes off his robe and comes down and faces uh, you know, the judge's seat, and he pays the $1,000. Jesus comes down faces the judge's seat, God in heaven, and pays the price, not $1,000, but his life. And then what happens is now the judge has to let the guy go free because the fine is paid. So now death doesn't have any more grip, and so now the fine is paid, and he has triumphed, and he has destroyed the devil because the devil's only power is if he can hold you in sin. Somebody say amen. Because the wages of sin is death. And death, let me read it again. It says, death is swallowed from victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And when Jesus died and made propitiation, or when Jesus died and made payment, the payment for death was paid because there was a fine. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died for us. So those are profound things. Turn... I'm going to show you uh, Colossians 2, 14, 15. We're going to read it out of the 26 translations. All right. I'm going to read it from all the different translations because there's so many good ones. It says, blotting out, we're in Colossians 2, 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. He canceled the bond which stood against us, the bond that consisted of ordinances and which was directly hostile towards us. Another translation says, Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments which always hung over our heads. 
So broken laws and broken commandments is what? Sin. Sin hung over our head. And he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, and has completely annulled it by nailing it over his head on the cross. He took his list of sins and destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. So our condemnation, our, you know, being in that courtroom, being guilty, Jesus went and died and paid for it, and he erased all the charges that were against us. Doesn't have a thing. this, This is all before the resurrection ever happened. This isn't part of the, I mean, this is the precursor to, this has to happen for, but this is, this is what happened on Good Friday. There was a court session in heaven on Good Friday. And he destroyed, he took sin and he removed it and he destroyed the devil. Well, why is the devil destroyed? What does that mean that he destroyed him who had the power of death? Because the devil's name, devil is just a generic term. It's not his name. How many of you know devil is not his name? How many of you know his name was Lucifer? Bright morning star, I think Lucifer means. And his name got changed to what? Satan. What does Satan mean? It means accuser. See, when you understand that, you understand everything about the court case. You you understand everything about... The, ordin- the sin that was hanging over our head being removed. When you understand that he is accuser, so accuser isn't just something he gets tagged. In the Bible, names describe the very essence of the being. So he's not just called accuser. He is the accuser. And when you take away his, acu- his ability to accuse... His power to accuse us, you destroy who he is. Somebody say amen. So he destroyed the power of Mr. Accuser by making him so he can't accuse us. Why can't he accuse us? Because propitiation has been made. Jesus paid the price for all of our sins that were nailed over our head, were removed from us, and then look what it says. Let's keep on reading in verse. Uh, we're going to look at Colossians two fifteen. We just looked at two fourteen. So in Colossians two and fifteen, it talks about the things that were, were done to the devil as a result of that. Now look, verse fifteen, having spoiled principalities and powers. Now he took the accuser and he says he destroyed the devil who had the power of death. He destroyed the accuser's ability to accuse us anymore. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he disarmed the principalities and powers. He disarmed them of what? Little swords and knives and and pitchforks? No, no. He disarmed their ability to accuse us. Somebody say amen. He disarmed these principalities and powers which fought against him. He rid himself of all the powers of evil and the hostile princes... And rulers stripped from himself and dominions. And it says, robbed their prayer. And then having drawn the sting of all the powers ranged against us. But I like the one that says he disarmed them. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He destroys Christians by accusing them of being 
sinful when, when the sin has been forgiven. He's saying we're sick when the Bible says we're healed. He says that we're poor when the Bible says we've been prospered. He accuses us of being in poverty. He accuses us, and, and he says, and it's your fault. And he's constantly accusing us so we have a sin consciousness instead of a righteousness consciousness. See, when you know that you're the righteousness of God, then you know none of this is stuff is on the basis of how good I am, but it's on the basis of how good Christ was who stood in my stead making the covenant. So we're talking about a courtroom is where Jesus defeated the devil. He didn't defeat the devil in a fist fight. He defeated him in the courtroom of Almighty God. And he disarmed the devil's ability to accuse us and say that we're somehow not righteous or he spoiled the principalities. He took and uh, he, he made us righteous. He made us unaccusable. He made us uh, the children of God. It made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If we're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, how can the devil continue to accuse us? He stripped the devil of his number one thing that he does, and that we know that's the number one thing that he does because that's his very name, the accuser. That's what Satan means. How are you glad that he got stripped of his ability to accuse us? We look at that and we see how did Jesus defeat him again? He won the court of heaven. He disarmed the sin and condemnation power and factor over us. Jesus was, he won in the court of law. He was our Jewish lawyer and advocate. Well, children, I write these things unto you if you sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. It's ongoing. It's standing. Advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who will be for that time. No, standing and ongoing, he is the propitiation of our sin, and not only of our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So even when we sin, it's already paid for. It's already forgiven. Now you have to receive it. Somebody say amen. We have to receive it. Yes, we still confess our sins. First John 1, 9, of course we do that. Because that's a relationship issue, not a jurisprudence issue of our adjudication and our stance in Christ. Somebody say amen. That's a relationship issue. First John 1, 9 is saying you're sorry to your heavenly father and getting forgiveness and cleansing. It didn't cause you to not be righteous anymore. And then when you asked for forgiveness, you became righteous again. Our standing stays the same. Now, the unrighteousness of the sin is cleansed from us, but our standing is in righteousness. And it breaks our fellowship, not our standing with God. Number two, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he's the prosecuting attorney. Revelation. Go ahead and turn there quickly. Talking about what all happened on Good Friday. All right, I'm going to begin reading there in verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying, In heaven now has come salvation and strength. Oh, I'm sorry. We're over there in Revelation 12 10. 12 10. And I heard a loud voice saying, In heaven now has come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God. And the power of his Christ, for the accuser of the brethren is cast down. 
which accused them before our God day and night. See, that's the same as he destroyed him who had power, the power of death that is the devil. This is where he got destroyed is in the courtroom. He got destroyed because Jesus made the propitiation for God's wrath, paid the punishment, and shut up the accuser. Now, he'll still keep trying to accuse because he only lies, right? And so he may accuse, but now we know that the court case is already settled and we no longer are under his accusation. Somebody say amen. He's the accuser of the brethren. And the charges are dropped. That's what I was talking about, those sins that were written above our head. Those got removed. It's kind of like in the old days in the wild, wild west, there used to be wanted posters. How many know there's still wanted posters in, in, in some of the post office and things? And, you know, it, it's kind of like, that's kind of like wanted or wanted, you could say, for a crime. Or here, we put this over his head because he's committed sin. It's kind of like, I like thinking of it when it says that the handwriting of the ordinances or the sins were written overhead. I'd like to say that's almost like a wanted poster got tore down. A guilty, these are bad, this is a bad guy poster. And then on the wanted poster, he's wanted for first degree murder or first degree bank robbery. And you got the picture of the guy and you got his charges or his sins. That's kind of the way we were. Here's our picture up here. And, and, it's, and it's got all of our sins, our whole life on it. Not just wanted for one or two, you know, breaking the law, federal offenses, but wanted for all the sins that we've ever committed. And bring them in so we can bring justice to them and not just send them to prison, but be sent to hell. But that's all removed. Think about that. How many of you would not like to have to see a wanted poster of yourself? And how many of you, if there was one, how many of you would be glad if somebody could go pay the price for you and tear it down? And all the charges that were written on that wanted poster. That's kind of what Jesus did. He went and paid the fine and tore down the wanted posters that told everybody what kind of crimes you were wanted for. And now nobody can accuse you anymore because the wanted poster's gone. Somebody say, hallelujah. hallelujah. Amen. I hope I'm making this understandable. The devil's accusations used to be valid. But since Jesus paid for them, see, and that didn't necessarily happen at the resurrection. The resurrection is a different thing. That happened on Good Friday when he paid the price. And he defeated the devil in the courtroom of heaven. All before he rose from the dead. Somebody say amen. See, and the wonderful thing is, Jesus gets put to death, but Jesus doesn't have to stay dead because he didn't commit any of the sins he died for and paid for. That's so cool. I really like that. So let's go on to the third thing. So number one, Jesus makes propitiation on Good Friday. He pays for our sins. In so doing, in that courtroom before God Almighty, the accuser of the brethren faces off with our Jewish advocate attorney who pays the price, who takes away the wrath, who paid the punishment, and so he took away sin, so now he takes away death. He takes away sin, 
So now he takes away the ability for us to be accused because it's an already adjudicated and passed. You know, in America, you can never be tried for the same crime twice. Where do you suppose we get that? We get that from the Bible. And there's, you cannot be tried twice for the same crime. And so Jesus knows that. Jesus pays for that, and he stops. You know, how many of you would like, you know, can you imagine, you know, when, when Donald Trump gets proven that he didn't have Russian collusion and all these little accusers still running around chasing him, he did it, he, they're still accusing him. You know, they remind, they remind me of little demons running around trying to accuse him after he's been declared innocent. How many of you know the devil's like that? But how many of you know they could go to a court of law and how many of you know it would mean nothing there? Because he's already been proven innocent. All right. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting how, how you can see the devil at work today. Number three, he led captivity captive. So now he paid the price. He won the courtroom case. And now he takes everybody out of captivity. Let's read about that. Ephesians 4, 8 through 11. These things all happened on Good Friday. But Holy Week, you know, there are some other things that it's good to know and have an understanding of, as well as the resurrection. And then we're going to talk about that. Ephesians 4, 8 through 11. And then also go back to, let's go to Psalm 68, 18 first, because that's who Paul's actually quoting. Paul quotes Psalm 68, 18. This is where he gets the whole concept. And it says in Psalm 68, 18, Thou hast ascended on high, and thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Wow. Then go, and you can see the very clear referencing of Paul in Ephesians 4, 8 through 11. We'll begin reading. Ephesians 4, 8 through 11. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, same words, and gave gifts unto men, same words. So how did that happen? Where did that happen? When did that happen? Who are these captives? What does it mean that he, he led them uh, captive? Now, verse 9, now that he ascended, he ascended up with these captives from someplace, now that he ascended, what is it? But he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. Now, remember, God took out his punishment on Jesus. His wrath was poured out on a substitute. So now they can go to the courtroom and they can declare that he's innocent and everyone who's in Christ and the accuser can no longer keep accusing because now the price is paid, the fine is, you know, the death sentence already happened, and the accuser is shut up. He's defeated in court. He can lie about it, but it, it holds no power anymore. He can't do anything to us because it's all a lie because everything that we could do wrong has already been paid for. Aren't you glad of that? So now... These people that died in the Old Testament are in two places, Abraham's bosom or Hades, Gehenna, the place of departed spirits. Not the lake of fire. That doesn't come till after judgment. 
People, there's, people are not in the lake of fire right now. They're in the place of departed spirits in the center of the earth. And there used to be now an empty place was Abraham's bosom also in the center of the earth. So when you died, nobody went up. Everybody went down to the center of the earth. But there were two compartments over here is Abraham's bosom. That's the believing saints of faith of the Old Testament. Though they're not born again yet, they believed and their faith was reckoned to them as righteousness. Somebody say amen. On the work of the cross that was yet to come. Then there are those who, like in the days of Noah, rejected it. And they're down in the place of departed spirits. And so that's what the reference is. But they're all captives, either in Abraham's bosom. I, I don't know about you, but I don't care if it is Abraham's bosom. I don't want to live in darkness down in the center of the earth for the rest of eternity. That's being a captive. And I certainly don't want to live in the place of departed spirits awaiting to be judged and cast into the lake of fire. That's even worse yet. Somebody say amen. But they're both places of captivity. And that's where everybody from the Old Testament was being held. Let's keep reading. Now that he ascended, what is it that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? And he that descended is also the same also that ascended up far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some, and we know the rest of it, to be the, the different minister gifts, and he gave them uh, to do that. And, and it's a very powerful thing. And what does it mean, though, that he ascended and descended first? And he went down and he set a bunch of captives free. Well, let me just start out by saying, how many of you remember David at Ziklag? He went out and he'd been fighting Philistines. He's a picture of Jesus. He's a type of Christ. He's defeating the powers and principalities of hell. The Philistines. Because <laughs> they're ruled by the powers of devils. He's defeating them. And he comes home and his wife's gone. His kids are gone. All of his gold and silver are gone. All the men are there. All their wives and kids are gone. All their silver and gold are gone. And they, and they had a lot of silver and gold laying around from doing all these conquests. And his own brethren wanted to kill him. That's kind of like when the, Jesus' own brethren, the Jews, wanted to kill him. And David inquired of the Lord, kind of like when he, Jesus went in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Lord said, go in, take the fight to the enemy, the Philistines, Go in and take all back and return. Jesus went down into the center of the earth and he took all that belonged to him back and he returned. Remember that song, March into the enemy's camp and take back what belongs to you? Jesus marched down into the center of the earth, but I'll tell you how he took it back. He, he didn't like grab a bunch of people under his arm and, 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 or send them up in a, in a helicopter or you know, rescue out, out of some pit somebody fell down into or something. No, no, it's not like that. Jesus went down into the center of the earth and this message that there's been propitiation made. There has been an adjudication that you're all free now. All your sins are forgiven and this devil cannot long, no longer accuse you and keep your wanted sign posted above your head. And now... You're free. In the Old Testament, we talked about this, but now it's actually happened. 
See, in Matthew 12, 39 and 40, we see that Jesus, it says he went to the center of the earth. And it says, even as the sign of Jonah. Go ahead and turn there, Matthew 12, 39 and 40. A lot of people say, well, what does that mean? What it means is he literally went down to the center of the earth. That's what it means. That's where hell is. I left my body and God showed me that. I know that's where hell is. I know that's where the place of departed spirits are. I've had supernatural experience that proves that out. It says, and he answered, this is over there in Matthew, and it's 1239, but he answered and he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. When did that start? That started on Good Friday. When he was killed and propitiation was made. I mean, he was beaten, stabbed, you know, and all these things, and, and killed. And that was propitiation. That was God. That was God beating the living daylights out of sin. That was God's anger. I mean, make no mistake. That was God doing that to Jesus because that's what we deserved. And then, after he did it, he said, boy, the price really got paid 100%. And devil, you can't accuse anybody who is in Christ of one thing because it covered everything from Adam to Armageddon, every sin in between, every sin that they ever thought, spoke, acted on, is covered. It was a fierce propitiation. It was a fierce satisfying of wrath with a substitute. And you, when we stand in the courtroom of God and the devil tries to accuse, he said, uh-uh, <laughs> that, that fine is so paid. It is so utterly Paid with his blood, no one can refute it, devil. So shut up. You have no reason to accuse. But now we got all these people down there in Abraham's bosom. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you only one sign. That's that I'm going to go down in the center of the earth for three days. Now, he also said he was going to raise from the dead, which he does. But what did Jesus do down in the center of the earth after propitiation was made, after the courtroom uh, shut down the prosecuting attorney, and the prosecuting attorney lost the case. Mr. Accuser can't accuse anymore legally. And he can't do anything about it now. Now these people are going to hear something and be set free from captivity. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 20. Talking about good fight. We're talking about what happened before the resurrection ever came. All right, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, for Christ also had once suffered for sins. Everybody say suffered. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That's the courtroom. Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which he also went and he preached unto the spirits in prison. Wow. Which were sometime disobedient, and once the long-suffering God in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved. Now, go to verse 6 now. 
For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead. These people are dead. What else could that be? Jesus went down into the center of the earth and he preached unto those people, those Old Testament saints that were dead. You say, well, it says the ones who were disobedient. Wouldn't they be the ones in hell? Well, we'll explain that in just a moment. But this cause was the gospel preached to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Wow. You see, this is the story, without going into a lot of detail. Well, we could read it. Let's, let's go to Luke. Let's read it. Let's go to Luke 16, 19 through 26, because Jesus, now get this. I'm going to give you the picture, then we're going to read it. So it'll stick in your mind. Jesus is killed. He descends and he goes down. And over on this side are people in hell who disobeyed in the days of Noah when Noah was preaching. A bunch of disobedient people. Over here is Abraham's bosom where people believed Abraham. They decided to be in faith about this Messiah that was going to come that would be like these lambs that they used to kill in the Old Testament that would take away their sins like during the Passover and like what the priests do, and it would be this perfect lamb, and he would be slaughtered, and it would take away your sins forever. And, uh, and these people over here believed that. These people over here didn't believe nothing. They didn't listen to anything that was trying to be preached to them. And now they're both going to get to hear the gospel preached. And they both can hear it, both the people in hell, because they're, they're all captives. But only captives from the new, I mean, from those who believe, get to go up with, with Jesus. Now, let's, let's read over there, Luke 16, 19 through 26. It says, And there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously. So there's a rich man. Everybody say, there's a rich man. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. So there's a rich man and a beggar. Okay, so we got two people. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man, say, well, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried away by the angels. This is the poor man. Now listen. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried away by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Then it says, and then there, the rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lifted up his eyes. So where does it say the poor man went? Abraham's bosom. Where does it say the rich man went? In hell, he lifted up his eyes. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip. So here's the guy in hell talking to Father Abraham. Well, Father Abraham isn't in hell. He's in Abraham's bosom. And he said, send Lazarus that he may dip his finger in the water and the cool of my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, so Abraham's talking to him in hell, he's talking to him in Abraham's bosom. <laughs> he said, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest these things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things, but now he is comforted, and now thou art tormented. And beside all this between us, and you are there, is a great gulf fixed, so that they which found which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. So he's saying, 
there's a great gulf between us, but we can talk to each other. Those in hell and those in Abraham's bosom can have a conversation for some reason. Now, don't ask me why. I don't understand that, but that's what the Bible says. So when Jesus preached to those who were in prison, do you suppose both sides could hear him? Absolutely they could, and they did. And how many of you know, even though one was Abraham's bosom and another one was hell, how many of you know they're both locked in the center of the earth? So are they captives then? So they're both captives. And then it says he preached the gospel, and those, it says in James, who heard it for this purpose. Let me just read that again over there in James. In other words, he preached, and all those who rejected the gospel got to hear that the gospel that Noah was trying to preach to them was actually true, and their rebellion caused them to miss it, and they're going to forever be in hell, and they're going to get to see the guys who believed it was true, and it came to pass, and Jesus came down, and he preached the gospel, and they got born again, and they got to leave that place. And we look over there in 1 Peter. Let me, let me just read that one more time, because it kind of tells us. Very interesting. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead. Were they all people who died? In Abraham's bosom and in hell? Yeah, they're all dead. They're all people who died. That they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. So they were judged as to whether they were going to receive the gospel and be in faith, or whether they were going to be rejectors. And that was ultimately verified by Jesus going down and preaching to him. Hallelujah. Jesus descended and he preached to those people on Good Friday. So he descended first. Everybody say, he descended first. But then he ascended. Now let's look where the Bible shows us those people ascending. Now we're, we're going we're gonna to stop there because then we start getting into the resurrection. We're talking about Good Friday tonight. We're not going to get into the resurrection tonight. But we're going to look at Matthew we're going to go to that, 28th chap, that 27th chapter, verses 50 and 51. Jesus preaches to him. It says, first, what is it that he first descended, and then he ascended and led captivity captive. He took those captives, and he captivated them and brought them up. And look what it says. It's very, very powerful over there. Matthew 27. Verses 50 and 51, it says, And Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent twain from top to bottom, and the earth did shake and the rocks rent. Now, between verse 51 and 52, three days pass. Because it talks about the earthquake. Well, you look, where was the earthquake? You look at Matthew 28, 1 and 2, it says, And behold, there was a great earthquake. And that was when they went to the tomb on Easter morning. The earthquake, they don't tell you three days pass between verses 51 and 52, but three days pass. But look what it says. So Jesus has had propitiation. He paid the price. He's gone to court and won the court against the accuser, the prosecuting attorney. He won and destroyed the prosecuting attorney, humiliated him, took away all of his power to condemn and then he went down and he preached the gospel to those who were captives. This is all before the resurrection. All this took place. If you're wondering what Good Friday was all about. It says, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent. And there was the, the way was made open. And the earth 
did quake and the rocks did rent. I wonder if that's because Jesus was going down into the center of the earth. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept rose out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. So he descended, but then when he ascended, he led captivity. All those captives came up through the ground out of their graves with Jesus as a picture of our resurrection that's yet to come. Somebody say amen. So that's the captives that were led captive. And he descended first, and then he ascended, and he brought the captives from Abraham's bosom with him that he had preached to in the center of the earth. Preach. He preached uh, that the accuser has taken down your wanted signs. and I mean, the Lord has taken down your wanted signs, and he's disarmed the accusation or the accuser of the brethren. Why? Because I paid the price when I hung, when I hung on that cross and was beaten and God poured out his wrath. 